0: hello and welcome to the green minds podcast showcasing the science stories and solutions behind climate change with phoebe scott alex miller lottie flashcas and guy wilkinson hello and welcome to another episode of the IB green minds podcast this week is an exciting episode because it's one of the first this year that features an activist i have the pleasure of introducing pablo breit insurance campaigner for market forces an ngo based in australia that exposes financial institutions who finance and ensure environmental destruction. Pablo, thanks for coming on the show today. You're very welcome. Fantastic having you. Thank you. One of the first questions I wanted to ask is really what led you to working with Market Forces and what's your career journey to to date?
1: Sure. Um, Look, I've always had a real fascination, um, even from childhood, um, with politics and not you know big P politics, politicians, parties, that sort of stuff, but politics is in power relations in society, and you know how those, how they you know play out, I guess. And so I've always been really interested in that, interested in um, how to achieve social justice, and you know later on climate justice, and what sort of, what are the power relations that are stopping us from achieving those things. Um, I think that interest stems from uh, being the grandson of a Holocaust survivor, and so hearing those stories from from my maternal grandfather and 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 my mother all like I think opened my eyes to what can go wrong uh, with power concentrated in the wrong hands, and the importance of politics and you know democratic structures in you know in avoiding injustice. And achieving justice. So that's really that. That was really my my base. So I was always interested in in activism, in politics, um, and in social justice issues. And went into an environmental engineering degree at university, and just learned more about the climate crisis and about where we were at with that. And saw, I think, my position as an Australian, you know, a, a a country that is one of the world's biggest fossil fuel exporters and one of the biggest per capita um, polluters, you know, I, I saw that we had an important role to play in in fighting this issue. And so that was really, you know, where I got to, I, I, I was, I co-founded a, a local climate action group. This was now about 12, 13 years ago, um, in my local area in the inner north of Melbourne. Um, and just, you know, that was part of a, a grassroots upsurge really in climate action groups in Australia. I built, we used instinct. Um, we, we made a lot of mistakes, but we learned a lot along the way. And eventually I found myself um, working at a uh, transition renewable energy kind of think tank called Beyond Zero Emissions. I was the first paid employee there and really just you know, from from then on, just started, you know, seeking out organisations and campaigns that I felt were going to have the most impact in terms of helping accelerate the shift from fossil fuels to renewable energy.
0: Great, fantastic. And um, I know market forces do have a couple of uh, UK based employees and com- campaigners, but I, obviously, it's it's largely orientated around Australia. So for those in our audience who don't know what market forces do, would you mind briefly describing describing that?
1: sure look we are um, a group that's really focused on the finance sector and the links between the fossil fuel industry coal oil and gas and the finance sector so we do a lot of research a lot of our work is research based we track fossil fuel lending by major banks um, we track as as much as we can as much as it's disclosed the investments um, by major investors pension funds superannuation funds in fossil fuels and we track the insurance companies and their underwriting of fossil fuel companies and projects. And we we, we just published that on our website so people can see that. I mean, it is very Australia oriented. We do have a UK version of our website now. Um, as you mentioned, we have a campaigner based in the UK um, now who's really focused on, on HSBC and, and Barclays um, among other institutions. And so people can look that up find out the fossil fuel lending of their bank or, you know, superannuation fund, find institutions that don't prop up fossil fuels um, and take part in our campaigns that we do to really push the finance sector to to knock out that pillar of support for the fossil fuel industries, um, being the finance sector, which obviously plays such a critical role in enabling them to function and also expand obviously what we need them to do is shrink as rapidly as possible
0: perfect thank you and diving into the insurance side at the moment which is obviously i think a lot of what market forces do would you mind describing the the mechanism through which you carry out your activism within the insurance sector and, and really what impact that has on fossil fuel companies yeah look we
1: we engage with insurance companies I've been working a lot on Australian-based insurance companies. Um, There's kind of three really big ones based here. And we are... Market Forces is um, like the Australian outpost of of a broader global campaign called Insure Our Future, which is looking to get insurance companies to restrict their underwriting, so meaning insuring of fossil fuels, as well as their investment in fossil fuels. So a lot of my work has involved engaging with those companies directly. Um, When they don't engage in good faith, we will run things like brand attack campaigns, you know, using social media, using outdoor advertising. Um, We'll get investors, shareholders, as well as customers to speak out um, about how they want the company to change. Um, And If we have the information, we will also publicize the actual direct links between some of these companies and you know, an insurance company and the company, the fossil fuel company or the fossil fuel project that they are underwriting um, as well. So we really apply pressure from various different directions to convince companies that um, they need to change. And look. With insurance, it's actually, I think, there's a real irony that, you know, I and Market Forces more broadly has had to work on insurance companies. I mean, you look at just in the paper today and yesterday in Australia, there was two of our three insurance companies declaring that they had once again... And this has happened about a dozen times in the last fifteen years. They have they had once again underestimated their natural disaster payouts um, for the financial year, and so obviously that then increases losses if they're not you know reinsured or you know for those losses. So we just had some floods here in Victoria and some very strong storms, and. Now these companies have yeah blown their budgets for natural disasters and this is happening year after year after year. Now and these are companies that you know we had to convince to stop underwriting new thermal coal projects and then we have convinced them to do that, but you know it took took some effort. Now you know it's obviously in the insurance industry's interest to limit global warming as much as possible. and so, They shouldn't need that much convincing, but unfortunately, some of them do. I mean, another thing we're seeing in northern Australia where we're getting stronger cyclones um, is people not being able to afford insurance because of worsening extreme weather. And so again, that's creating a bit of a vicious cycle where insurance companies are losing, you know, their customer base is shrinking while they increase prices because of increased risk, which then once again shrinks their customer base. Um, which forces them to increase premiums. So it's it's a complicated situation, I think, for insurers. And they should be our greatest allies um, in fighting the climate crisis and in accelerating the transition out of fossil fuels. And for that to happen, they still have a long way to go. But we have seen some really significant shifts. And here in Australia, all three major insurers will not insure new thermal coal projects. They all have dates either 2030 or earlier for exiting the thermal coal underwriting sector altogether. And two of the three have restrictions on oil and gas production underwriting as well and have set dates for exiting that sector in the 2020s. So there's been some positive steps there. Um, And obviously there's a few more, few more to go.
0: That's great to hear. It's quite interesting to hear that they underestimate the amount that they pay out based on uh, nature-based disasters. It seems like that should be their bread and butter, being able to estimate how much they're paying out from natural disasters, but clearly, clearly not. Um, is there well, a tool? That is,
1: I mean, that that's that is global warming, you know, at work because it's not only worsening extreme weather and thereby natural disasters and claims, it's making it more unpredictable as well.
0: Do you think there's a danger? You, you mentioned briefly that insurance companies could be price, pricing themselves out the market by virtue of, of insuring thermal coal and then having to pay out larger amounts to customers due to climate disasters and then having to raise premiums, which will cut many customers out the market. Do you think there's actually a danger that they could price themselves out out the market completely?
1: Well, they are in certain parts of Northern Australia um, and you know, people who can't afford insurance are not buying it, obviously. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's a, recently the Australian government proposed like a, a pool model where you cap losses for insurers and then anything above that, the taxpayer pays for. And so, you know, we're now getting into a situation where there's an increasing number of locations that are becoming unviable because of worsening extreme weather. And that is particularly happening in Australia in the north. Um, but will spread south um, and you then have, you know, taxpayers having to pick up the tab because obviously the insurance market is is failing there to properly cover risk because, uh, it, because the risk is too great.
0: Your campaign on the Adani coal mine is really what I see as the sort of flagship project for uh market forces so would you mind telling us a little bit about that and then i think you've had some recent success on that as well which i'm sure you wouldn't mind telling us about
1: <laughs> yes of course yeah i mean stop adani is is an epic epic campaign um that you know we have been working on since market forces was founded back in 2013 um look it's 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 a line in the sand really for the climate movement here in australia but also globally so Um, Adani group is a conglomerate based out of India. Um, There's a thermal coal basin in central Queensland in northeastern Australia called the Galilee Basin. It's got a lot of fairly dubious quality thermal coal in it. It's currently unmined and there's several proposed mines to be built there and the Adani one, which is called the Carmichael coal mine, is the only one that's really advancing for various reasons related to Adani's own corporate structure really which is vertically integrated um, because if you're selling this coal on the open market you're probably not going to do very well finding buyers but if you're selling it to your own coal-fired power stations then it becomes more viable. So this is could become the biggest coal mine in Australia and Australia is a place with a lot of big coal mines um, and could open up a, a new basin. It's essentially, it's it's a carbon bomb of global proportions. Every single living thing on this planet has an interest in seeing the coal and galley basins stay in the ground. Um, so you know, the battle's been going on since Adani really took over the, the license for this project in, it's been more than 10 years now, 10 and a half years pretty much. Um, the project is under construction, unfortunately. Um, it has been delayed by seven years now and counting. Thanks to community resistance, um, but yeah, it is it is under construction. So we're in a dangerous phase, I think, of the campaign. But look, it's been yeah, I mean, it's been incredible. Like thousands upon thousands of people here in Australia have been mobilised around this. There's Stop Adani groups, well over a hundred of them, all across Australia. Um, it's been an upsurge in activism. It's one of the biggest environmental campaigns ever. We have. 102 major companies that have now committed to have nothing to do with the project, including 38 insurance companies. Um, we recently had, and this might have been the the success you're alluding to, but we recently had one of their main Adani's main construction contractors that's building part of the railway line, BMD, admit to a parliamentary inquiry that it had searched the entire world for insurers and was unable to find them. So it was essentially It's possibly the first example of a company being turned down and not being able to find public liability and a couple of other types of insurers um, because of the climate impacts of the project they're working on. And so Adani had to shift those risks onto its books so that this company could continue constructing its railway line, um, which will go from, you know, from the new coal pit to the port. Um, on the Great Barrier Reef coast, so you know it, it, there's been there's been lots of battles in this very long campaign that have been won, um, and the war goes on. I think, and you know we, we just saw recently that this the idea that this coal mine will be viable for 60 years or however long Adani thinks they're going to run it for is is ludicrous. But Adani is doing their best. I mean they've just put in an application to build a coal-to-plastics plant next to, you know, in in Mundra on the coast of India, if you would believe it, um, which will create a new market for this coal that they're going to be digging up here in Australia. Um, And so, you know, they're trying their best to make it viable, um, and we continue to to fight on and, um, you know, don't intend to stop at any any point
0: that's great that's great to hear um what truth is that in what i've seen in the press a lot is that australian coal is one of the cleanest coal that's available on the market is there any truth in that and if so is it not better to be mining australian coal versus for example indian or uh indonesian coal for example
1: yeah, I mean that's a classic coal industry line um, that they use here. It doesn't apply to Galilee Basin Coal, you know, even if it was true, like this quality coal that they're talking about is um, coming out of the the Hunter Valley in New South Wales, so a couple of hours north of Sydney, um, where, you know, the, the, the town of Newcastle, the city of Newcastle is, um, which is home to the world's biggest um export coal port um the gully basin coal is not particularly good quality and you know this this idea that you can replace slightly better quality coal with for you know you can replace your lower quality coal for slightly better and this is somehow a solution is you know it's like saying that smoking low tar cigarettes will cure your lung cancer like it. It's it's a it's a ludicrous proposition. It's a great and analogy. <laughs> increasing increasing supply, you know, by opening up the Galilee Basin will depress coal prices, which will delay the transition out of thermal coal for electricity use. And so that's really that's really our focus. And um, you know, we need to kind of fight it at both ends, really. So we're at the supply end and obviously the demand end. Um you know, mainly across Asia, which is mainly where our customers for Australian coal is. Um, and that that's happening too, you know, we have um, we have groups and partners who are working to do exactly that in places like Japan and South Korea and, and India.
0: That's interesting to hear. Let's assume, for example, that uh, Adani coal, or, or sorry, the, the Carmichael coal mine uh, in Australia is ever so slightly cleaner coal and Developing countries, particularly in Southeast Asia, have, have this issue where they are significantly behind on the renewable energy transition. Is it not better to use slightly cleaner, I use in inverted commas, coal uh, to help fund their power transition to renewable energy?
1: Well, not if it means opening up massive new basins, which then, I mean, there's a difference between a temporary replacement of slightly cleaner coal while you're transitioning you know while you're setting dates pre 2030 or whenever it is to close your coal plants and replace them with something else that's that's a that's a very different proposition to building Australia's biggest coal mine which is going to produce coal for 60 years um and therefore need a market for that long when you know we need wealthy countries need to be out of coal by 2030 and um, developing countries by, you know, not long after that. So it's, um, the the problem is we, we look at it from a point of view of is this, it, it's less important the slightly, the slight change in emissions coming from a coal plant than the speed at which the transition is actually going to happen. That's where you get your reduction in emissions. And it's important really to accelerate that as much as possible and That means restricting supply and building out renewable energy. So, well, as a first step, it means stopping the expansion of fossil fuels. So new mines, new plants, new pipelines, et cetera. And then the next step is then rapidly, you know, building out alternatives so that you can shut those plants down while either maintaining energy consumption or increasing it, as in the case would be in India, for example, where, you know, that obviously needs to happen.
0: Great. Thanks very much. Just how deep rooted is the problem of fossil fuel production and, and Australian politics? It just seems to me that Australia leads the way in having fossil fuel uh, production entrenched in almost everything we do. And it it seems a shame because I, I meet many Australians and it just seems so binary whereby most Australians seem so fundamentally opposed to fossil fuels. And yet the politics and the economics dictates that it, the show must go on.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, as I started at the beginning, you know, the the politics of the issue of this issue is the barrier. And I I think that's, I think that applies to most places around the world. But obviously, it's very stark here in Australia. It's it's about power relations. It's not about technology. It's not about economics. And in Australia, we have extremely powerful uh, corporate lobbies that represent coal exporters coal miners and represent oil and gas producers um and so they have a hold on both major parties and have for a very long time and they put a lot of effort into stymieing uh climate action and i mean you you look at climate and and that that it does it is going against what people want i mean australia has I've never seen a poll that shows anything less than a majority wanting more action on climate change wanting a faster transition to renewable energy even when it means even when they ask people are you willing to pay more for things for electricity even though that's not true you know like we'll be paying a lot less for electricity in the transition to renewables um people still want it and and that that support is increasing i mean you can't you can't live in Australia and escape the impacts of climate change. It's, you know, the the bushfires we had the summer before last were just utterly horrific. The floods that get worse, the stronger cyclones, um, it's just not possible to escape. You know, even if you don't live in the bush, both Sydney and Melbourne were blanketed with extremely toxic smoke during the bushfire emergency um, for days and days on end. So you cannot escape it people want it people absolutely the majority of people want it but yes we have a, we have a stranglehold the interesting thing though is that we have found ways around it apart from the fossil fuel export side of things occasionally using state governments and local governments mainly because it's it's at the federal level where these companies have most of their power you know, Australia has a, is, is, it's too slow, but there's a reasonably successful rollout of renewable energy happening here. States like Tasmania and South Australia are, you know, at a hundred, you know, close to 100% renewables, or Tasmania is because they've got a big hydro project there, but, um, and lots of, and wind now. So we're starting to see, um, you know, we have the highest uptake of rooftop solar in the world. Um, Just this week, the Queensland government, you know, the government that's most wedded to the fossil fuel export industry, really, in in all of Australia, um, announced that they didn't expect, they still have state owned um, electricity generators up there for that state, which are coal powered. And they said by 2023 or around then, they won't be making any money because they're gonna be undercut by renewables. And so I think there's slightly different politics here between the export industries debate and our own fossil fuel for electricity use debate, which thanks to renewable energy targets at the state level, you know, we we have started to see, you know, we've closed down coal plants, um, you know, in the last 10 years or so, that several coal plants have been closed. We're starting to see that transition, you know, happen slowly. We are a country with blessed with such amazing renewable resources that, um, you know, obviously it makes perfect sense. And that's where I think you also have, um, the, you know, the workers unions and the workers that work in the actual generation, electricity generation here, not export, but electricity generation. I think there's also a greater acceptance that this is not a long-term proposition. And so they're willing to actually admit that these industries will be phased out. And so they try to work with governments and with climate Groups and environment groups to actually get fair transitions happening, and not just sudden cl- shutdowns and people just kicked out of work.
0: Yeah. Okay. Great. And I just wanted to pick up on something you mentioned. Obviously, the um, the the wildfires, which from even the UK perspective looked absolutely devastating. What impact did that have on the rhetoric? Obviously, it probably had a, a massive impact in the public sphere but more specifically in politics and on the part of perhaps fossil fuel companies as well.
1: Yeah. Look, it had a big impact. Um, The impact, we, we, we didn't really get a chance to see how that would roll out because literally as soon as the fires got put out and then pretty much that week, the COVID pandemic began in Australia. It happened in March last year was when the fires were out. They'd been burning for about six months. And then, um, you know, we all went into lockdown, and suddenly everyone was talking about COVID. But look, I think they had—they did have a profound impact, and I don't think that impact has gone away. Um, you are seeing increasing concern about climate in in the population. But we saw things, you know, in previous previous emergencies, bushfire emergencies, there'd been a hesitancy um, among people to to clearly call out the link between the bushfires and fossil fuels, you know, and, and global warming. And, you know, people feeling that because whenever anyone did that, you know, whenever a Greens politician came out and did that, you know, that the fossil fuel lobby and and their the politicians that they own would just, you know, attack them and say, you're politicizing the issue, you know, et cetera. And so people were hesitant to do it, even though I personally think it was, you know, if if, if that's not the moment to talk about it, then when is, right? You know they're like oh now's not the moment well you know i think it was justified but this time around it was just it was just let loose i mean there were the the thing that really hit made it hit home to me was this scene so our prime minister was in hawaii basically in december when at some of the worst at some of the worst times you know People losing their homes, entire towns having to s- spend the night on a beach, you know, while while the town burned behind them. Um, he was in Hawaii having his having a holiday, and people went and essentially camped outside the official residence, Kirribilli House, it's called in Sydney, um, and people just went there and had a. A, a protest for days demanding that he come home and deal with this. This was climate activists leading those, leading, leading that um that protest. And there was a real upsurge in linking it. And it was, yeah, it was just obvious that something was different, you know, just the scale um, of the emergency. And so I think there was a change, and it really got driven home to people. And it's, you know, it fades and then you know the anger fades and the the concern fades but i don't think it ever completely goes away and i think a lot of people join the dots during that summer um and they yeah they and they won't unjoin them
0: great thanks very much and turning back to the uk now what's the focus of the um team that you have on the ground here in in london
1: oh look i mean i'm not entirely across all the work we're doing in the uk just because My head has been so deeply into the Stoppadani work. Um, We've recently worked with groups and shareholders to lodge resolutions um, at uh, HSBC and at Barclays. Um, We released a whole bunch of information on HSBC and kind of the, the dirty deals that it's involved with. So really encourage people to to check that out. Um, The Australian website is marketforces.org.au and then there's .org.uk where you'll get that information. And really our our work is, you know, our, our UK work is directly linked to those banks and also about really creating a network where, you know, finance is global. Right, the finance sector is truly global, and so the climate movement needs to be truly global as well to really deal with it. And so, we'll talk to UK banks about um, Southeast Asian coal plants as well as investments in Adani directly, which several of them have. And you know, Barclays and HSBC both have links to Adani companies, um, and we'll really yeah try to get a global perspective happening so that. They know that we will hold them accountable for the stuff they do, and I think I do see. I have been sensing a tipping point since since 2019, actually. So for a couple of years now, a tipping point in how quickly you can you can win campaigns on the finance sector. We were worried that that COVID and and all that stuff would kind of you know, re- slow down that progress, but I don't think it was slowed by COVID. I think people kind of realized that we we had to deal with crises and climate was one of those crises that we have to deal with. Um, and so I think we're seeing, yeah, more companies restrict coal. And we're also seeing, I don't know if you've noticed this, but especially this year, this proliferation of greenwash, just like companies putting out ads and, you know, HSBC is like I don't know, they're advertising here that they're helping the Great Barrier Reef or something. I have no idea how, you know, like owning shares in Adani companies, I don't see how that helps the reef in any way. But, you know, this proliferation of greenwash. Um, And in my view, where there's hypocrisy, there's hope. So these companies are basically saying, we are, um, you know, these are our values. And so they're more vulnerable when you say, well, you're not actually adhering to your values because you're lending to coal companies you're investing in gas companies and you know all those sorts of things
0: okay great thanks very much and, and uh what, one more question before we ask our sort of final closing question what's uh what's next for market forces are there any projects on the horizon that um you're going to roll out on imminently
1: we're doing a bit of work at the moment on pushing past um some of this greenwashing and just collecting like, like we've done with HSBC you know the all the uh, fossil fuel project that they're linked to the, the dirty deals to kind of say well they're claiming they care about climate but this is what they're actually doing um there's a lot of that in train um we are continuing to work on um, convincing banks in particular um, to stop lending to um, coal companies. So it's continuing what we're doing, but trying to do it bigger and faster um, as much as possible and really cutting off that flow of, of capital and finance um, to companies and projects that are taking us backwards with regards to climate change.
0: Great. Right. Fantastic. And uh, if listeners were to take away one thing from today's podcast, what would you want it to be?
1: Well, I mean, there's a few things. One is, I think, join the dots and hold, these, hold, hold institutions accountable. Um, and that that goes for that goes for any whatever role you play, whether you're general public customer, a shareholder, an employee. Um, employees, I think, you know, we didn't touch on this in in this in this chat. Employees, I think, play a critical role in helping improve the practices of fossil of um, finance sector companies, um, and just use use whatever power you can, you know, to hold the institutions accountable um every little bit every little bit helps, I think. And look I I also feel like you know some days you know my my motivation is low and I look around and I kind of wonder you know where we where we' where we're heading and how we're going to end up. but one thing one thing that is true I don't, I don't know whether things are happening fast enough, but I do I have very clearly seen that the transition is speeding up. And that, I think, is obvious with, you know, the reduction in price of renewables, the this proliferation of of restrictions on fossil fuel lending and insuring that we're seeing and we're getting more and more announcements, you know, happening week to week. Even the proliferation of of greenwash and companies declaring their love of the environment on World Environment Day and those sorts of things, I think, are positive because it actually, they're... they're you know nailing their colours to the mast saying this is what we believe in. And so then we can say, well, you need to match your words with actions. So all these things are steps forward. And um yeah, it's hard to know where we're ending up, where we're going to end up, you know, on on climate. And obviously there's still a lot, a long way to go. But the one thing that I know is true is that yeah, that things are speeding up and people are responding better we're able to win campaigns faster in some cases than we used to and more and more people are are joining our side
0: great well Pablo thanks very much for that that's a a positive note to end on and uh, thank you for coming on Green Minds today
1: no worries thank you very much for having me